Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Welcome to the Summit. Uh, I'm Mel Massingale. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to welcome you. Thank you for being here today. I also want to welcome all of you that are watching online, no matter where you may be or how you're joining us today. Thanks for making the summit a part of your day. I pray that God blesses you as you have uh, peeked in with us. So I pray that uh, you're having a wonderful day today, no matter where you are. Um, Hey, I want to tell you about a couple things. Number one, um, Easter is coming up, which is crazy. And we're going to have five worship experiences, as you heard in the the video just a moment ago. Um, And I want to encourage you to... Uh, to invite your friends. Uh, We've got some invites out in the lobby. Uh, They're all over the place, and these cards are available. Take a stack to your workplace, invite people you know, and uh, and get them to church. So I really believe this is going to be an incredible Easter for us, uh, that we're going to see dozens and dozens and dozens of people make decisions for Christ, receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. And uh, so it's an important season for us. So I would love for you to invite your friends. And if you normally attend our 11 a.m. worship experience, um, we're going to have a ton of guests that weekend. Uh, Typically, a good indicator for what our attendance is, is the previous Christmas. So this year, this last Christmas, we had about 2,200 people attend our Christmas services. So we're expecting around that same number for Easter this year. And so what we want to do is make sure we have plenty of space for guests, for people who don't know God, don't normally go to church, to have a wonderful experience. And so if you would consider uh, attending another worship experience, maybe our 8 a.m worship experience, and I know what you're thinking right now. You're saying, Mel, I, I barely get here at 11. I get it. I get it. Would you take one for the team that weekend? That would be great. Um, and so we just want to make sure we have plenty of a parking and plenty of space for the guests that are going to be here that weekend to just experience God. So if you could help us, that would be wonderful. Also, I want to let you know um, that we've started at something here a few years ago that the weekend after Easter, we always have a guest in. And in years past, we've had people like Daryl Strawberry or Marion Jones. Last year, we had Frank Reich, who's now the head coach for the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, And this year is no different. We've got another special guest. His name is Michael Francisi. And Michael Francisi, at one time, was one of the top earners in the Colombo crime family, in the uh, New York Mafia. And so his story is pretty incredible. Um, And... um, if you Google him, you will find out more about him. Uh, his story is also featured in a, in a documentary. It's on Netflix called Inside the American Mob. The first two episodes highly, uh, highly um, focus on Michael Francisi's life. And so he's a terribly interesting guy. And he had an incredible encounter with God that just radically changed him. And uh, he's going to be with us that weekend sharing his story. And so just so you know, we're going to have our normal Sunday worship experiences at 9 and 11. But then Saturday night, we're going to have two instead of one. So that'll be at 4.30 and 6. And so we would love for you to attend one of those and, again, bring people with you. So if you bring a friend to Easter, invite him back for the next weekend to hear the mobster because he may kill Pastor Mel on stage that day. So uh, you don't want to miss that. And then the following weekend after that, that's the 14th and 15th of April, we're having baptism. So we're expecting to have dozens and dozens of people baptized that weekend. And you don't want to miss that. That is always a special weekend here at Summit. So uh, four big weekends in a row with our egg hunt and then these services. So don't miss any of it. Make sure you're bringing friends with you. So today we are beginning a series called Thrift Store. And the idea behind the series is that... um, that there are things in our lives, maybe our life itself, we've given up on and we felt like it was beyond hope, beyond restoration, uh, that, that it is just too far gone. And most of the items you see on the stage today are items that um, someone felt like was too far gone. Uh, many of the things that are up here were 
uh, were discarded, were thrown out. They were found at a thrift store. They were found on a curb. Uh, they were given away. Um, but, but we want you to know that God has not given up on you. That you might look at yourself and feel like you don't have much value, you don't have much hope, you don't have much of a future, but God does not look at you the same way. He looks at you and thinks there's something beautiful there that has value, and in my hands I can do something incredible with that. And so I want you to know that, uh, that, that God has an incredible hope for you. Uh, and through this series, we're going to actually use a piece of furniture as a metaphor for for our lives. This beauty here was picked up at the Salvation Army here in Indiana. This little end table, some of you may have this in your house, and that's perfectly fine. Don't worry, I'm not going to make fun of this end table. I think my parents have this end table twice in their house, as a matter of fact. Uh, if you could see the view I've got of it, um, when I bought it, it's got um, some sort of gelatinous, uh, crusty substance on the top. It's got some grooves that have been filled in by some other substance. I'm not sure what it is exactly. Um, there is gum on the bottom of it, on the underside, that someone has carefully placed there. Um, but this ended up at the Salvation Army because somebody didn't want it. Somebody said this doesn't have value. But what we're going to do over the next few weeks is discover the value in a piece like this. We're, gonna, we're not going to restore it to what it was before. We're actually going to do something new with it. So over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to talk about how sometimes God restores us, but sometimes God restores us to a place that it's not really restoration. He's doing something entirely new in us. And that's what we're going to do with this table. Um, so I'm not going to do it on stage during our services, but this Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, we're going to have a Facebook Live, and it'll be about 15 or 20 minutes, and we're going to start the process of what it means to restore this table. So I'll do that live from my basement. Isn't that exciting for you? <laughs> you get a peek inside the dungeon. And uh, so we're going to walk through what does that mean? What does it mean to restore this piece of furniture? And so we'll be talking. I'll be taking questions. So if you have questions about this message, if you have questions about the process and what that looks like in our lives, uh, that's what we're going to be doing. And so the first step in a process of restoration is what we're going to talk about today. And it's the stripping process. And this is the process by which with a piece of furniture like this one, there was a finished coat that was put on it, whether it was lacquer or maybe polyurethane sometimes paint, and, and what you do when you restore a piece, depending on what you're, how you're going to finish it, is you use a stripping agent. So you cover it with a chemical, and the chemical has to stay wet, and you scrape it, you rub it, maybe use wool or a scraper, and you get that coat off. And the reason you have to do that is that finished coat originally was there to protect the piece of furniture, but as time goes by, that coating sometimes begins to flake off or wear off. It can become uneven, and that which was supposed to protect it can actually be a hindrance for, for what it needs to become to, in order to restore it. And so today we're going to talk about what that means for us and what that looks like for us to be stripped, because none of us like the process of being stripped, but it's so important. In fact, when you're stripping a piece of furniture, if you go to, the, if you go to Lowe's, for instance, <clears throat> And you look for stripping agents there. There are going to be these chemicals. And a lot of times it'll say environmental, environmental friendly or you know, non-toxic. <clears throat> but even if they're non-toxic, they can still be toxic. Um, and so they can be very dangerous. you got to wear a respirator sometimes and goggles and long sleeves. Because getting it on your skin can cause damage. You definitely don't want to get it in your eyes or in your mouth. Because it can cause serious damage. So what we have to understand is the stripping process is difficult. The stripping process is painful, but this is a process that God wants us to go through in order to get us to where we need to be. Now, I want to say this up front. There are two ways. If you are, if you are a believer in Christ and you follow Christ long enough, you will be stripped at some point, okay? 
So either God will strip you of some things that need to be stripped out of your life, or unfortunately, the enemy of our souls, Satan, will strip us of some things as well. But I will tell you, both of those things God uses redemptively in our lives. So if you've been stripped of something, maybe that was good, that you loved, it's easy to go, God, why did you do this? I don't know that it was God that did it. Maybe it was Satan that did it, but God wants to use it redemptively to bring something good about from that. So I want you to know today that, that this, is, this message is really about loss, but as we're walking through it, I want you to know that our loss has a purpose, that our, our pain is without a purpose. And so that's what we're going to talk about just a little bit today. We're going to start in Ezekiel chapter 13, uh, and, and the, the key passage of Scripture we're going to walk through today is in the book of Job. Um, and so it's funny because Ezekiel and Job are both books that I normally don't preach from, but I feel like they're so appropriate for us today. In the book of Ezekiel, uh, the, the, the nation of Judah, which was a split of the nation of Israel, so these were Jewish people, they had been taken into captivity in Babylon, and there were some prophets that were telling the people what they wanted to hear that it was about to get better, there was peace on its way, don't worry, things are going to be fine. And God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel, and he said, hey, you go shut this down, go fix this, you go speak for me. And this is what God says to the nation of Israel, and specifically to these false prophets. He says in Ezekiel 13, 14, I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, this wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. Now, I don't, I don't know if you can tell this from this script, but God was not happy. In fact, I think in the Greek, it's ticked is what it is, ticked off, right? He was angry, and he said, hey, guess what, fellas? The walls are coming down. And sometimes we sing songs, and the walls are coming down. Oh, yes, the wall, right? And, and the walls have a totally different connotation in the political landscape of the world we live in today, and that's not what we're talking about either. But what God was speaking to the prophets about were the walls that they had erected because in many ways, their identity as a prophet protected them because they weren't really prone to criticism because you don't criticize the prophet. And so they had these walls that were erected in their lives that shielded them and protected them. And, and then they whitewashed these walls. And so what they did is they were trying to make themselves look better than they really were. And, and one of the ways they did that is they lied about the prophecy. They said, hey, don't worry, guys, it's going to be great. Because they were looking for people to go, man, you are such a good prophet. You're the best prophet ever. And so they were shielding themselves and protecting themselves with their reputation and with words that were false. So they whitewashed things and made them look better than they really were. And what we have to understand is that many of us are similar to these prophets. We protect ourselves. We protect our lives. Sometimes it's with good things. Sometimes it's with things like our reputation. We protect ourselves because we go, hey, this is who I am. This is my identity. Sometimes it's maybe with our finances. I protect myself. Nothing can harm me because I'm a high wage earner. Maybe it's our position or our title. All these things are things that protect us and shield us, that, that, that keep us safe. And it's interesting because what God says to the prophets of Israel is, hey, I'm tearing that wall down. That thing that you thought was protecting you, it is no protection for you. I'm going to lay waste to that wall. In fact, he uses the phrase laid bare. The walls will be torn down and the foundation of the walls will be laid bare. And the word laid bare there, it's a Hebrew word. It's gawal or gala. And what it says is to uncover sometimes shamelessly 
to strip off, strip, remove, expose, lay bare, or reveal. And what God is saying is when I'm done with this wall, there's not going to be a wall left. All that's going to be left is the foundation. The foundation is going to be wiped clean. It's going to be totally revealed. You think you're hiding behind this wall, prophets? Guess what? Your sin is going to be revealed to everybody. Everybody's going to see it. And let's be honest, isn't that a terrifying thought? That everyone will see us and know us? That there will be no hiding for who we are? Even for those of us that that feel like we live pretty well, that's a little bit nerve-wracking because we live in a society that says it's not okay to be yourself, it's not okay to be real, you gotta put on a front. That If our Instagram lives were our real lives, life would be chaos because that is not the real thing. We put on a front, we put on a show, we have this facade that we put up that everything's perfect and everything's right and this is our wall. And in many ways, I think God is saying, I'm gonna tear that wall to the ground. I'm gonna lay waste to that wall that's gonna be bare. See, this happens in the Old Testament with Ezekiel, but it also happens in the New Testament. So God in the Old Testament says, hey, I'm not happy about what's going on here, but God, uh, Jesus in the New Testament does the same thing. In Matthew 23, verse 27, Jesus is speaking to uh, the religious leaders, and he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. See, we like to think Jesus is just full of love and, hey, guys, right? And like, come on, let's hang out. And Jesus was getting in some religious people's faces, right? Uh, he said, hey, you know what? You're like a whitewashed tomb. You look all perfect, like your life is put together, like there's no issues, but it's all a front. It's all a lie. It's a facade. Behind that whitewashed tomb is death. Behind that whitewashed tomb is all kinds of vileness and uncleanness. And many of us live our lives this way. We look great, we put on a show, but at the end of the day, we have to understand at some point in our life, if we were pursuing God and we're in this thing long enough, we will be stripped. And when that day comes, we need to be ready to respond well. So the story we're going to look at today is from Job. It's in Job chapter 1 that we're going to begin. And Job uh, was a godly man. He loved the Lord. He was a wealthy businessman in his day and age. Um, the, the area that geographically that he lived in was south of what is modern-day Israel. And he had everything going for him. Good reputation, good family, wealthy, everything you would think you would want in life. And, and the story goes in Job chapter 1 that, that Satan and God have this interaction. And Satan says to God, hey, I've been walking throughout the world just looking at things, checking things out. And God said, hey, have you ever considered my servant Job? There is nobody like him. I mean, he's really spectacular. He's faithful and he's honest. He's godly. Man, he's beyond corruption. This is my paraphrased version, by the way. And, And Satan says this to him. He says, well, of course he's beyond corruption. Of course he loves you. Of course he's gonna act right because you gave him all this stuff. Of course I mean, if, he had all, if, if anybody had what you had given him, of course, they would love you too. You've paid him off, basically, is what he's saying. And God says, and Satan says to God, but if, he took, if we took away his stuff, he wouldn't love you. And God says, that's a deal. Let's see. So he says, you can, you can have him, but you can't take his life. So Satan says, all right, sounds good. So we fast forward the story just a little bit, and Job chapter 1 verse 13 tells us that Job's kids, his 10 kids, are having a party, a dinner party. They're hanging out together at the oldest son's house. 
and, uh, and Job is just going about his business, just living his life. And one of his servants, in verse 14, and one of his servants comes to him, and he says, Master, the, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And Job says, man, that's, that's bad news, right? My, some of my servants have been killed, and, and we see here that the oxen and donkeys have been killed, like are taken away. That's, that's not good. Wow, I hate to hear that. And while that servant was speaking, another servant comes up, and he says, Master, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And I'm sure Job is thinking, I, I, wow, that's a tremendous coincidence, right? Like, I thought the first thing was bad. This is, this is pretty bad, too. Whoa, that's weird. While the servant was still speaking, verse 17, another servant comes up and says, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And at this point, Job says, I should not have got out of bed today, right? I should have just stayed in bed and Netflixed all day long. That's what I should have done today. I knew it. And you think it couldn't get worse. This must be rock bottom. But it's not. Because while this servant is still speaking, another servant comes along and says, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And so within the span of just a few moments, Job has lost everything. Everything that he found valuable in his life is, is now taken from him. In this moment. And now maybe you've never experienced this exact moment. Maybe nobody has stolen your donkeys. Maybe your sheep have never been devoured by flames from heaven. But I'm telling you today, we've all experienced loss. And we've all gotten to this moment that Job was in where he said, how could this happen to me? How did I end up here? I thought God was better than this. How could a loving God allow this to happen to me? In Job, in verse 20, it says, He arose and he tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And this was a sign of mourning. This, this is an official act of mourning. What it, the reason he tears his robe and shaves his head is because it is an outward sign of what's going on in his heart. So when he tears his robe, it's a sign of his heart being broken. When he shaves his head, it's a sign that, that his, he, he is, his pride is gone. So he's showing on the outside what's going on in the inside. And verse 21 said, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all Job did, he did not, uh, in, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So what we see here is Job lost his possessions. He lost his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his camels. He lost the house, the house that his oldest son was in and his kids were in was probably his own home. But what we have to understand, it wasn't just his stuff that was lost. His fortune was probably in his possessions. So it wasn't like he had a pile of gold that was, made him wealthy. His wealth was found in his possessions. It wasn't liquid. So when his possessions disappeared, his wealth disappeared with it. In one moment, his retirement was gone. His wealth was gone. His money was gone. His possessions were gone. He was penniless and broke in a moment. 
We see he lost friends because at this day and age, servants typically weren't like slaves. They were more akin to family than they were uh, just a hired hand. And so the people that were killed were probably people he was close to. They were probably people he had relationship with. And so for him, he lost people he was close to. But beyond this, we see in in Job chapter 2, some of his friends show up. Does anybody have friends? I've got friends, and then I've got some friends. Um, These three friends show up to comfort Job, and we find that they offer very little comfort. Um, They show up, and in verse chapter 4, verse 8, Eliphaz, one of these three friends, says to Job, listen to what he says, and remember, remember the context. He's just lost everything that he loves. And Eliphaz says in Job 4, 8, as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So let me tell you what Eliphaz was saying to Job. You reap what you sow. So he's saying to him, all this tragedy that's happened to you is not on accident, Job. We all know you must have done something for this to happen. I mean, I feel bad for you, but what is it, sin? Did you sin and then God punished you? I mean, you got something secret going on that you haven't confessed? That's what it is, isn't it, Job? Because this doesn't happen in a vacuum. This happens because you deserve it. How many of you in that moment would be guilty of murdering your friend? (laughs) Can you imagine you just lost a child and someone said to you, well, you probably deserved it. What did you do to cause that? So Eliphaz was not really a friend. In fact, when we look at the dialogue between these guys, what we understand is there was a, there was a mindset that was dominant at that time called retribution theology. And retribution theology basically says that you can tell who the good people are and the bad people are by how they're blessed in their lives. <laughs> and this is an insidious way of thinking because what happens is it, it tends to make us believe that um, if you drive a nice car and you live in a nice house and you're pretty healthy and your kids are good kids, then that must mean that you're a good person, so God blessed you. And if you don't have a nice car and you, you live in a shabby house, and right, then you deserve it because there's something going on in your life. There's unconfessed sin or you just don't have enough faith. Or... And this is what happens. When you believe this theology, it causes us to be prideful because if you're one of the people that happens to be blessed with a nice house or a nice car, a beautiful spouse or whatever it might be, you tend to start going, man, oh, wow. I mean, I'm kind of a big deal. I mean, obviously, I must be a good guy because I'm, look at all I've got. So God must think I'm a big deal. And oh, you don't, you don't have as much as I do. Well, that's okay. Someday you will attain spiritual greatness like I have and Then the other side of that is we're either prideful or we're depressed because what if I just live in a this size house or this kind of house? What if my kids aren't the best athletes? What if my family doesn't have the most money? What if I'm chronically ill for whatever reason and can't seem to get over it? All of a sudden, it all falls back on me, and I go, well, I must be a terrible Christian. My faith must be insufficient. Uh, uh, maybe I've got sin in my life that I have not yet confessed. There's reason for this. 
And this is faulty thinking. This is bad theology. It is not true. It is unequivocally false. And I can promise you there are people in this room and people watching online that there is residue of this belief in your heart. That when something bad happens in our lives, we go, I must have done something to cause this. And I'm telling you, this is, this is false. Scripture tells us that it, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That, that sometimes bad things do happen to good people, unfortunately. Now, I don't understand why, but, but this is what I do understand. The, the God we serve takes all of our pain and all of our hurt and all of our failures and all of our issues, and he will redeem it. He will make it right. And it doesn't mean that, that our story is going to end like Job's story did. But what it means is he's going to do something in us if we'll just submit ourselves to the process and just trust him. So what we see is he lost friends, he lost his family, he lost his kids, which is tragic. And in some ways he lost his wife because his wife comes to him in the midst of this. In Job chapter 2, after Job didn't curse God and didn't lose his faith, Satan goes back to God and goes, okay, okay, you were right, but if you let me take his health, then he would curse you. And God says, okay. He's not going to do it. I know he won't, but you try your best. And so Satan causes him to break out in boils, open sores all over his body. And then after this, we, we see his friends show up and they begin questioning him. Why, why is God doing this? If God's a good God, he wouldn't be doing this to you because he's good. So you must be broken. There must be something wrong with you. And so this starts in, and then pretty soon we see his wife show up, and his wife says, you know what, why don't you just curse God and die? At this point, wouldn't it be easier if you just killed yourself? Now, I just want to say for the record, if you are a single person in the room and you're looking for a spouse, look for the opposite of this woman, okay? <laughs> she, lacks, she lacks the gift of encouragement, okay? <laughs> just to put it lightly, she didn't come along and say, baby, we can make this together. We're in this. We, we love each other, right? She, no, no, no. She said, why don't you just kill yourself? No matter how bad your spouse is, if they haven't encouraged you to take your own life, then it could be worse, okay? I'm just telling you. So all this has happened. He's lost so much. And at this point, we have to understand, God does not cause tragedy in our lives. And this was the faulty viewpoint of these people. Everybody said, there must be something wrong with you because God has brought this on you. And what we have to understand, God does not cause tragedy in our lives, but he will use it to reveal himself to us. He always redeems our loss. He always redeems our loss if we can see it if we can trust the process. That is who he is. That is his nature. He, he is redemptive by nature. That's what he wants to do. And we have to understand that. I had a friend, um, my wife and I had friends in college that, that we were friends while we were all dating. And, um, and Mary Ann was roommates with my wife in college and they were best friends. And, and we were in ministry at the same time. And at the time we were living in Oklahoma and they were in, in uh, Texas and Marianne had a seizure and she died suddenly, tragically. It was heartbreaking. And um, they left, she left three young daughters behind and a widow, a widowed husband to raise these girls. 
And um, he had told me there was a story, uh, the story that there was a well-meaning friend who came to one of his daughters and, and said this, and said, honey, God just needed your mom as a voice in the choir in heaven. And when I hear that, it makes me angry. Because I know their heart was to try to comfort this little girl. But what this person tell, had just told this five or six-year-old girl was that God is selfish. That, that God caused this tragedy in her life because God wanted her in heaven to sing in the choir. And a statement like that can shape theology, can shape the way we view God. Because all of a sudden we look at God and go, God's a selfish God. And God causes things in our lives because maybe he's just playing games with us. But that's not God. God never causes tragedy in our lives, but he will always redeem tragedy. See, sometimes God strips things out of our lives. Sometimes Satan strips things out of our lives. But the end result is always redemptive in our lives if we will trust God. So if you're here today and you've been stripped of something you love deeply, maybe a, a friend or a family member that you've lost, I'm telling you today, God did not take your family member. But the loss of your family member can be used redemptively. We've seen over and over and over again in our church times that, that someone has lost a loved one and a family began attending church, began a relationship with God. They came into relationship. We've seen situations where literally dozens of people have come to faith in Christ because of one funeral. And I've had family members say, this would have never happened otherwise. Are they glad they lost their family member? Absolutely not. It's still heartbreaking. But what they say is, God is redeeming this. God's using something terrible for his glory. And that's what God wants to do. So beyond his family, this is also really important. Job lost his identity because all of a sudden his possessions, his wealth, his position, his family is all gone. His health is gone. In fact, when Job is, is in dialogue with God, he actually says, God, I'm the laughing stock. People are writing songs about how tragic my life is. I used to be on top of the world, and now I'm a joke. I'm a punchline, God. And when we get to that place that all the layers have been stripped away and the wall has been laid bare, when we're in that moment when it's just us and God, we have to ask ourselves, who am I really? Behind the facade, behind the wall, behind the protection, who am I really? And when God is all I've got, I have to understand God is really all I need. So how does Job respond to this? See, Job's response is a roadmap for our response. Because, like I said earlier, you will be stripped in your life. It is going to happen. If you are a human being, if you breathe in and out, if you have a pulse, this is going to happen in your life. And so when that happens, how do you respond? And I'll tell you, this is how Job responded. The first thing we do is we see that Job worshiped God. So in Job 1.20, he said, Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground and worshiped. So what did he do? He mourned appropriately. He didn't ignore the fact that he had lost something and someone. He mourned appropriately, but he worshiped God. In the midst of his mourning, he said, God, your character is not changed by my circumstance. Because tragedies happen, it doesn't mean you're bad. You are still good, and I still love you. I still trust you. I just don't understand what's going on. So I choose to worship you, not because I feel like it, but because you are good. And that is so hard for us to do. 
It's easy to worship when things are great, isn't it? When the bank account is full, when you got plenty of money, when you're paying your bills on time, when your kids are healthy, when things are going well at work. Man, it's easy to worship God. God, you are good, right? But what about when you've been stripped? What about when you've been betrayed? What about when you've been hurt? That's when things get real. So Job worshiped God. The second thing Job did is he questioned God. See, he spends, I don't know, 20-some chapters in dialogue with these friends who are accusing him of being a sinner and telling him how bad he is. And they're arguing about God, the character of God. And then he finally gets to a point and he goes, okay, God, why is this happening? And he's so bold that he requests to put God on trial, which that's a pretty bold statement, right? So he says, God, I, I'm, I'm making some accusations about you. I'm questioning you. You've got to defend yourself here. And it's interesting because God gets a little sarcastic. I like that. I've, I've said before, and I know people hate this, uh, but I think one of my spiritual gifts is sarcasm. That's not a real spiritual gift, but I'm being sarcastic, so I can't help it. So God gets a little sarcastic, and he basically says, oh, so you're trying to tell me how to run the universe. That's great. Weren't you with me when I created the heavens? Oh, yeah, weren't you with me when I hung the stars in the universe? Oh, no, you weren't. That's right. I forgot. Who, who does Leviathan answer to? And he's talking about whales and great beasts. He says, who do they answer to? Oh, that's, that's right. It's me they answer to. And so he's somewhat sarcastic, but what he keeps repeating to Job over and over and over is that there is a plan, and it's a redemptive plan, that, that, that God has a purpose for Job's pain, that God did not cause the pain, but God's going to use it for his glory, that God's going to redeem it, that God's going to bring something good from it, if he'll just trust him. And so through this process, a friend named Elihu shows up, and Elihu is a good friend, and he basically tells Job to shut up. Aren't you thankful for friends that will tell you to shut up once in a while? And then he tells the three other friends that they're idiots. I love it. And then he talks to them about how good God really is. And we need friends that will speak truth to us in love. And that's what he does. And he declares that in spite of what they see and feel, God is still good. That he is redemptive and he has a plan and a purpose for them. So what we see here is, is Job questioned God and his faith was shaken but it was never lost. In Job 1.22, it says, and all Job did, or in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So it's one thing to question God. It's another thing entirely to say God is bad. God causes evil because that is false. God cannot cause evil. God is good, and his plans are redemptive. So it's okay to question God. But the questioning led Job to this next part. Job repents to God. So Job questions God, and he finally gets to a place where he understands a little bit. He has a shadow, an inkling of understanding. And he says, it says this in Job 42, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He says, I was talking about things I didn't even understand, God. Because your way is higher than my way. He says, hear and I will speak. 
I will question you and you make it known to me. So he says, I don't have the answers. I thought I did, but I don't. You have the answers. I've got the questions. <laughs> I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in the dust and ashes. And so literally what he's saying is, I thought I knew you when my life was good. I thought I knew you when everything was put together. But in literally the middle of my mourning, in the dust and ashes that I find myself in, which is another sign of mourning, he said, in the midst of my mourning, now I know you like never before. See, I thought I knew you. But now when there's nothing else left, I know you in ways that I never dreamed possible. See, Job understands that in spite of what he's experienced, God is still good. And he acknowledges that God is working sovereignly. He's saying, God, you're doing things I don't understand. You're working in ways I can't possibly understand. So I'm not even gonna ask to understand it. I just wanna trust you. And that's so hard to do. So when Job's heart begins to shift and he begins to see God's purposes and plans, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in, a, <clears throat> in a better way, it leads him to this place where the fourth thing he has to do is he prays to God for his enemies. And this is something that um, it's easy to say, but it's so hard to do. When someone's wronged you or betrayed you, when somebody's fired you, when somebody's... Um, talked bad about you, trashed you, whatever it might be. It's hard to pray for them. But that's what we have to do. That's where healing comes from in our lives. God heals us when we begin to pray for our enemies. So Job's friends show up, right? And they begin telling him why he's wrong, why it's his fault, why the death of his kids and the loss of his fortune is probably something he did. And with all those emotions, he has to Forgive and pray for them. And so in Job 42.10, listen to this. It says, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. So hey, he, he got his fortunes restored. When? When he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. See, when I used to read this, I used to think it was some sort of consolation prize. Like God was like, hey, we're so sorry for your loss. We have some lovely parting gifts, right? At the end of those game shows, you know, like wah, 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 wah. And they go, oh, but we do have some lovely parting gifts, and it was almost like this was a parting gift for Job, like, oh, you lost your kids, we'll give you 10 more kids, right? Oh, you lost all your money, we'll give you twice as much. That's not what it was. This wasn't some game for God. This is what happened. Job's heart responds to God, and he says, God, when you're all I have, you're all I need. And God, I trust you in spite of what I'm dealing with. And God delights in that heart, and he goes, gosh, I want to I bless a heart like that. And I can imagine him looking from heaven at Job and going, guys, guys, get over here. you got to see this. Guys, get over here. Look, look at what's going on in Job's heart. Look at how he's responding to this. And he, he, he delights in that. Now, I'm not telling you if you follow these steps, God's going to give you twice as much as you lost at all. Because for Job, that wasn't the payoff. Job wasn't like, well, I guess it's fine. And oh, right now it's fine because I got all this stuff. No. Job got to the place where he realized that intimacy with God was supreme over everything else. And he was never going to stop mourning the loss of his children. It was never going to take away the pain that he felt there. 
But God restored. He, he gave him kids. He gave him a fortune. It took years for him to fully realize all this too. But what he understood is God is good and redemptive in spite of what I deal with. See, God strips us or allows Satan to strip us, but it is always redemptive. There's always a purpose for our pain. There's a passage of scripture in Romans chapter eight that's quoted a lot and, um, and so many times it's used out of context. In Romans eight twenty eight, it says, for all things work together for good for those who love him, love God, and are called according to his purposes. And sometimes we think this is like a, a get out of jail free card. Like, hey, I lost my job, but don't worry, all things work together for good, so I'm probably gonna hit the lotto now. Oh, my car broke down, but all things work together for good. I'm probably going to get a free car that's even better. Free Tesla, that's what's happening. No, nope, nope. Maybe, but probably not. See, if you look at this passage in context, in the context of Romans 8, what it's really talking about is God's redemptive plan for earth. That God, is, he sees, he's playing the long game. See, we see this much of our world and life. God sees eternity. And so when God sees us, he sees humanity, he's looking at the whole picture. And so what Paul says in Romans 8, 18, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul's saying, I don't even truly understand God's full redemptive plan, but I know it's good. And we can't understand in the middle of our hurt and pain and being stripped now, we don't get it. But God's got something so good in store for us that when we see it, it'll be worth it. All the pain, all the loss, all the heartache, all, all, all the stripping will be worth it when we see what God's plan really is. And then in Romans 8, 28, he says, for, for all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And the good that Paul is talking about here is not that we'll hit the lotto if we lose our job. It's not that if we lose a child, God's gonna give us a child back. maybe. But what he's saying is the good that comes through this heartache and through this sorrow, through this loss, through this stripping, the good that comes is that when that happens, we press into God. We draw near to him. We find that, that when we're stripped of everything and God is all we have, that's all we really need. And that's the good. We know God like never before. There's intimacy with God like never before. And it does not mean that we're going to get the cosmic consolation prize. But what it means is we're not going to be worried about that because we're so connected with God in that moment that, yes, we're still going to mourn. Yes, we're still going to hurt. But we're able to walk through that in a healthy way because we know God is good. And we know that his plans are good. And we know that he is redemptive, that he has the best in store for us. So if you're here today, maybe you've been stripped of something that was good. Maybe you've lost a loved one. I just want you to know it's okay to mourn. It's okay to grieve. It's healthy. Paul tells us we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We have a hope, and it's that God's plan is redemptive, that he's going to restore things. But this is, this is the challenging part. In order to restore something, many times you've got to strip it. That's the right process to go through. We remove the protective layers to lay it bare, to get to what really counts. So I want you to know today, if you're dealing with loss, God's here, he's near to you. Maybe you're here today, 
and there's some, some sin issues in your life. There's some things that are creating distance between you and God, and you recognize today those are protective layers. You've had those things in place. I'm telling you today, God wants to strip you of those things. He wants to be near to you. He wants to know you. He wants you to be revealed to him and him to reveal himself to you. And sometimes it takes us submitting ourselves to God and saying, okay, God, I want what you got for me. And he's going to strip some of that stuff away, take away the layers of stuff to get to the heart of who you are, to redeem you, to make you whole. That's what we're here to do today. So whether God has stripped you, whether Satan has stripped you, whatever the case is today, God wants to use that redemptively. Why don't you bow your head and close your eyes and pray together. God, we love you. And God, we don't love the process of being stripped, but God, I'm thankful that there's a purpose in it. So God, I'm asking today, Lord, number one, for mercy for those that have lost much. God, I pray that you would comfort those who mourn. God, I pray that you would let your Holy Spirit come alongside us and strengthen us and help us see that you really are good in spite of what we've experienced, that you really are just and loving and caring and that your purposes are bigger than what we can imagine, that you have a redemptive plan for us. God, I pray for those that are here that are maybe away from you, that there's distance in their relationship with you, that, that God, they've built up a wall, maybe because of some sin things, issues in their lives, maybe because of just rebellion in their hearts. Whatever it is, God, I pray today you would tear that wall down, that you would eliminate any distance in relationship and you draw near to them as they draw near to you. God, I thank you that although this process is difficult and can be painful, God, it is good to know you intimately. And I pray that we would see that good through this process. Now, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to ask if you're here today and you say to me, Mel, you know what? I'm not really in relationship with God. I'm not really close to God. There's, there's some issues in my life that I've built up that are a wall for me, a protection for me. Maybe there's some sin things in your life that you re recognize create distance between you and God, and you say, today's the day I, wanna, I want those walls to come down. I want the layers to be stripped off. And today, I just want to be in a relationship with Jesus. I just want to know him. If that's you, I'm not going to make you come forward or embarrass you. I just want to pray with you where you're at. If that's you, would you be bold enough just to slip your hand up real high where I can see it, and you can put your hand right back down. Thank you. I see you over here on my left. Praise God. Yeah, I see you back in the back. Yeah, over here on my right. Thank you, sir. Who else? Just a few more seconds. Anyone else want to join these? Thanks. Over here on my left. Praise God. Praise God. I'd like every person in this place, whether you raised your hand or not, just to repeat this really simple prayer after me. Say this out loud. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. And thank you for paying the price for my sins on the cross. Today, I confess my need for you. I cannot save myself. So take my life and use it for your glory. Strip away the walls and the layers that separate me from you and help me live a life that brings glory to your name. I love you and I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause today. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, the uh, Bible tells us you're a new creation today, that the old is gone and the new has come. 
So what we want to do is help you grow in your faith. Uh, you can fill the card out that's in the seat back in front of you. On one side, it says need prayer. On the other side, it says salvation. Fill out the side that says salvation. Drop in one of our offering boxes as you leave today. If you can't reach one of those cards or maybe you're watching online and would like to respond, simply text the word salvation to the number 555-888. When you do that, we're going to respond back and help you take the next step in your faith journey. Uh, here, what's going to happen now is these guys are going to lead us in a final song. Our prayer team will be available on either side of the stage to pray with you if you'd like prayer. So as we begin to sing together, step out from your seat, find one of our prayer team members, and let them pray with you. I, I don't think I mentioned this at the beginning of our, our message today. Um, did I say that we're going to do Facebook Live? I think that stuff. Oh, yeah. If you want some of the stuff that we're, we've got on stage, we're going to give away. Some of those things, we're going to have drawings. You can stop by the Info Center, fill out this card information, and uh, you can register to get some of our free, free junk from the stage. Yay. Uh, but listen, I want you guys to know I love you more than you know. I'm so honored I get to be your pastor. Why don't you stand your feet? We're going to worship together one more time before we go today. God bless you guys.